The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. G'day world, this is the Sniper of the Skies, Robbie Eagles, and you are listening to Keeping It Strong Style. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frogs. From the Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get go Boy Yeah from Tampa Bay To the Tokyo Dome This is keeping it strong style With your hosts Jeremy Donovan And the young boy Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping it strong style The ace of podcasts On the Social Suplex Podcast Network The young boy Joshua Smith here doing a special bonus solo episode. You heard that right. Don't turn off this podcast. We're going to get through this together. On today's show, we're going to review nights one and two of the inaugural NJPW Tamashi events emanating from their Oceanic brand. You can support our show by subscribing and following the Social Suplex Podcast Network or keeping it strong style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating and review. You can also get all the podcasts over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tees store, prowrestlingtees.com slash socialsuplex. That's where you can get all of your official Keeping It Strong Style t-shirts. If you need the, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. This week's episode is brought to you by NJPW EXT, the only browser extension for NJPWworld.com with features like dark mode, improved translations and layouts, custom and shared playlists, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level. Visit NJPWEXT.us today for details. And uh, as I mentioned in the intro to this show, this is a special bonus one-time solo episode featuring yours truly, the young boy Joshua Smith. Um, Essentially what's going on here is we've had a a couple weeks in between the end of the Road to Tokyo Dome shows and the upcoming Wrestle Kingdom 17 show that everybody is obviously so excited about that we covered that last week with Chris Samsa, myself, and Jeremy. And I kind of thought to myself, you know, in the meantime, there's been a couple uh, spare weeks of basically no new content. Um, what am I going to do at that time? And so I took it upon myself to get into the NJPW Tamashi events that were recently uploaded on NJPW World. And now keep in mind, we were covering these events on the show from a standpoint of when it was announced, the match announcements, everything of that nature. And this was early November. Um And then we were kind of told by our connections that, yes, these shows would be, once they were taped, that they would be broadcast on um, NJPW World, but we weren't given a definitive time or date. And multiple weeks went by, the schedule got crazy, and then by the time the shows were uploaded, it was kind of an omission. We just never really got around to watching those shows. Plus, we're not really even sure 
what the future of this brand is, what the aim of it is, the goal. And, you know, quite frankly, with keeping a strong style, the amount of content that, you know, New Japan proper and then their U.S. brand put out has kind of already stretched us thin. So we weren't totally sure what kind of level of coverage we're going to give to, you know, the Tamashi brand as another side project. But, um, you know, fortunately, we found some free time here and I took it upon myself to just watch these shows, kind of get some perspective, do some research, and figure out where I feel like they are, you know, doing well, where they're missing, what the objective was here, and kind of give my thoughts to you guys. And uh, another thing, the reason that this is a solo show, it's not like Jeremy didn't want to do the show. I kind of just sprung it on him last minute because it was just a sudden idea. And he gave me free reign, free reign to go ahead and uh, do this, so it wasn't something like he rejected. He just wasn't. I never told him about it, and obviously, with it being the holidays, it's been a couple busy weeks. So I felt like this would be a fun, cool thing for me to try out on my own. Um, I don't know if you can tell, I'm a little congested. Unfortunately, I did have a COVID exposure a uh, couple, or actually just over the Christmas weekend. Was sick for a few days. Luckily, I have some antibodies. I was uh, vaccinated a couple years ago, and that probably helped a bit. But um, getting over that, I'm totally symptom-free, just a little congested. So I don't know if you can hear that in my voice. Maybe I'm a little bit more nasally <laughs> than I would typically be on a regular episode. But I'm glad to get this opportunity to spend some time with you guys. Um, I've never done a solo episode. And you know, Jeremy's never taken a lot of time off from the show, but when he does, it usually leaves me scrambling to find a host, a guest host, find someone that can help me record. And I thought this might be a nice little test run to see if this is something I can do on my own. And if it, you know, is received well, then maybe we'll do some more of these in the future and Jeremy won't feel so trepidatious about <laughs> taking off and, um, you know, having some well-deserved R&R. Um, but this is also kind of nice because, as you're probably aware, we will be um, dropping this week's official episode after the 4th and 5th. That means typically an episode comes out, you know, Monday, Tuesday, and lately it hasn't been that – or lately that's how it's always been, but this week it's not going to be because – Obviously, like I mentioned, we're going to be recording in the middle of the week. So I thought that this might be a nice little treat to those of you that are used to us um, dropping a show on Monday or Tuesday. Um, I'm not going to do any news or any questions or any other coverage. Uh, if you have, you know, if you're tuning in now and you are trying to get information or uh, opinions about Wrestle Kingdom. I won't be discussing that on this week's show. We had a great episode last week where myself, Jeremy Donovan, and special guest, frequent guest, Chris Samsa, did a full breakdown and, and preview. And if you haven't listened to that and you're interested, go check that out. Um, but this week, we're just going to be reviewing and JPW Tamashi and you know aside from um some of the like I know that uh there's like the Never Open podcast and um the Stiff Boys those guys are all based out of Australia I believe and probably given some level of coverage to this um but you know I haven't seen too much coverage concerning NJPW Tamashi so I felt like this might be a good way for us to kind of broach those waters so without any further ado let's get into it and um want to say a couple things um number one um this is gonna be sort of like 
a new experience for you and for me because I myself don't have a lot of um, exposure to a few things. Like there seems to be three primary groups that are involved in these shows. You've got your New Zealand doje or <laughs> New Zealand dojo uh trainees that's going to be those that came out of the dojo who train under um bad luck fale as well as tony cozina and a lot of these shows have heavy representation from those guys which we haven't seen a lot of and then aside from that there's definitely like the independent scene from australia primarily pwa black label talent um, some Melbourne City, some others, but those are going to be like your your main representation is PWA, and I think there's a loose kind of affiliation or maybe like partnership here concerning that. Um, again, I'm not a huge expert. I don't have a lot of exposure to that brand, so um, that's kind of new. And then obviously the third brand is going to be, you know, your New Japan proper guys, your Kentas, your Ishimori's. Bad Luck Fale, some of the guys that we all know, and that's sort of what you're seeing here on these shows. So um, with that being said, this, again, is a first impressions sort of thing when it comes to these, uh, you know, New Zealand and Australian talents. Um, So I don't want anyone to take any sort of good or negative things that I say too much to heart because this is a first time outsider perspective on a lot of this. The other thing too, I understand that these are sort of like proof of concept shows. One show in particular, the first night seemed to be more of like a student showcase um, and felt, you know, very much like a house show, like a road to level house show sort of setup. It definitely had like the single cam and um, not as many bells and whistles. It, di- it didn't feel like a television-style production. Whereas Night 2, you had a lot more of the PWA guys uh, mixing it up with New Japan talent. And it had the multi-cam setup. And it felt much more like a kind of a uh, like a pilot episode of what they think that this might become. It sort of reminds me of before the Strong Brand existed they had the i believe it was lions collision lions break collision something like that they had the four episode run very similar in methodology and concept uh there um but i I say all this because i just assume there may be those who are listening who have more um understanding and um even exposure to these talents and to these brands than I do. So I just want to give you sort of a disclaimer where I'm coming from. This is sort of like a first time ever seeing a lot of these guys sort of um, opinion-based. But um, the first night here we had NJPW Tamashi 1. This was November 11th, 2022. Um, It was emanating from Christchurch, New Zealand at the Pioneer Recreation and Sports Center with an attendance of 650 individuals. So pretty good attendance for a first-time show. Uh, The evening consisted of six matches and a couple... um, Oh, another thing too. Jeremy... Typically, when we do our reviews, he's a lot better at uh, giving what I would call like the blow-by-blow or the detailed like ongoings of the match. I'm a little bit more based on like bullet points, kind of give a few impressions, and that's what I'm going to be doing here. I'm not going to give you a full breakdown of every single match, what occurred, but I am going to give you my thoughts, and as you can hear here, that's paper. I actually, typically when we do the show, I don't take any notes, but for this, I felt like it'd keep me... 
um, a little bit sharp and a little bit more um, on brand with what we're trying to do here. So I do have some notes. Um, my initial thoughts on the first night, there were it, so it, again, this wasn't like a full production setup. So what the show kind of consisted of is like you would see a title graphic for uh, a match that was coming up. And then it would shift directly over to the live camera. The camera was hard cam and we would just jump right into it. So there wasn't a lot of bells, a lot of whistles. I did think that the the commentary team that they had for both nights was very good. I believe they're the same commentators that do the PWA brands commentary. However, the first night they didn't. Uh, if they did, it was cut off. But uh, on what was broadcast on World, there is no introductory for those commentators. There's no moment where we see their faces or we even get uh, an introduction of what their names are. So for me as an outsider, I was kind of a little like, I don't know who these guys are, but they're good. Uh, no opening show packages. There's no, you know, like lights or, I mean, there was definitely some lights, but there, what I mean is like, there's no pyro or anything like that. It's kind of a bare, bare bones, minimalistic type of setup. Um, they did have a giant LED backboard though that kind of gave it a bit of a professional look, which was nice. Um, one thing I didn't like with the single hard cam, with a, with them having a, an attendance of about 650 people, they set up the the shot so that you could see the LED board and the ring, but you can literally not see any of the audience in attendance, and that seems sort of like a misstep on a show like this. But I don't know how important that was. Again, they weren't set up with multi cameras. Um, but it might have been nice to at least have some of the audience in the background there to kind of get a feel for the attendance. And I did see a still photo that's posted on their social media. And there, there were quite a few people there. So um, I felt like that was a little bit of a misstep. Uh, the video quality is not bad. The setup and the entrance were fine. But um, there wasn't any sort of uh, – well, not there, – there wasn't very good audio. Like the, the audio balances were all over the place. It almost seemed like they might have inserted the commentate the commentary post. I don't know, but uh, it came off very much like uh, if you've ever listened to Rev Pro, how hot their mics are and how crazy it sounds from an audio perspective. Very much similar here for the first show. Um, so the audio wasn't great, but the commentary itself was really good. The crowd, even though you can't see them, were really really strong. Better than most. NJPW US strong show uh, crowds for the most part. So you definitely had a lot of people that were very, very hyped and excited for this show. Um, I'm glad the show did make tape. Um, the first match that we had here, we had a matchup between uh, Chris Miles and Mark Tui taking on Jordan Allen Wright and Shep Alexa Alexander. Um, I believe Chris Miles and Mark Tui were both are both current trainees of the New Zealand Dojo. Jordan Allen Wright and Shep Alexander. I could be wrong, but I think that they are graduates of the New Zealand Dojo for New Japan. Um, the trainees themselves, the ones that Chris Miles and Mark Tui, uh, Mark Tui definitely had a lot of. Um, he was very over. He had a lot of support from uh, audience in the crowd. But the, the match itself was – oh, you know, and I apologize. I think I got that right. Mark Tui and Chris Miles, they're the ones that are uh, graduates of the dojo. And Jordan Allen Wright and Shep Alexander are the current trainees. They were the young lions in this match. Um, 
but Mark Tui was very over with the live audience, seemed like he had uh, supporters, friends, family, that sort of thing. Um, I got to tell you, the trainees themselves didn't look great. The, the young lines that are currently in the dojo, they still looked a little bit uh, sloppy, a little bit trepidatious. Um, the Fale grads looked good, but as far as their actual work in the ring, but the the presentation, their actual gear was a little shindy looking. Um, so I think that they have something there, especially with Mark Tui. Um, Chris Miles, Mark Tui, they stood out in this match, but they definitely need to work on their gimmick, kind of maybe work on their presentation. But I think they have something there. Um, the match ended. It was very short, 9 minutes, 12 seconds. Um, it wasn't bad by any means, but the finish was a sloppy but awesome fire thunder driver from Mark Tui. He picked up the win here. Um, like I mentioned, 9 minutes and 12 seconds. I probably would have gone about two stars here. And that was the first match to kind of give me an idea like, okay, we're sort of seeing like a student showcase. So this isn't necessarily like what you would see when you're watching Strong. You know, this is very much more akin to like a road to show or even like the uh the the lions break shows that they used to, or not lions break what was it called um i don't know the, they used to have the young lion student showcases back in the day that they haven't done in a while this kind of reminded me of that a little bit match number two we had uh the bullet club team of bad luck Fale and jack bonza they defeated the team of jake taylor and tony cozina tony cozina like i mentioned he's one of the trainers in the uh, New Zealand dojo, older gentleman, kind of an accomplished indie guy. Uh, Jake Taylor, he's a taller um, graduate of the New Zealand dojo. Um, obviously, if you're listening, you probably know Bad Luck Fale. Jack Bonza, he's one of the bigger stars right now in Australia, especially out of the PWA uh, brand. So, And um, I kind of forgot about this, but recently during a match that he had uh, I think back in like late October, early November, he had a match with Shingo Takagi and he low blowed Takagi. I think the match ended in a DQ and then he was awarded a Bullet Club shirt by Bad Luck Fale and he's now an official Bullet Club member, which wasn't something I, I totally recalled, but um, <laughs> that's the case. So um, Jack Bonza is now part of the Bullet Club and this match was fine. Um, Bonza's very good. Fale was very over with this live crowd. He wasn't getting as much heat as I would have assumed he would. That might just be because of the fact that, you know, he sort of has that trainer cred and him being from New Zealand, everything like that. Um, the guy, Jake Taylor, he's got a great look as far as size, but he's very, very green still. Um, I kind of forgot Bonza was in the bull club altogether, but, um, during this match, one of the things that did happen, uh, I noticed Bonza took this incredible <laughs> buckle spot. Maybe I would even go as far as to say the best buckle spot uh, I can recall since, like, Bret Hart, which this was totally different than the way Bret Hart takes the buckle spot. So that was really cool. Um, the finish came uh, at 9 minutes, 30 seconds, when um, the referee was – his back was turned and Jack Bonza hit him with a low blow. I believe Bad Luck Folly came in. And hit Jake Taylor with a big elbow drop. One, two, three. Picked up the pinfall win there for some good crowd heat. Uh, match number three. We had the uh, uh, singles match between 
Richard Mulu taking on Michael Richard. So first single match of the evening. This match went 9 minutes and 29 seconds. So as you can see, most of these matches were kept pretty short. Uh, Richard Mulu was recently one of the trainees that was uh, covered pretty extensively during the uh, New Zealand Dojo uh, documentary series that they have on New Japan World. One of the guys that they're very high on. Big boy. Um, definitely over with the live crowd extensively. Um, and then you have Michael Richards, who, you know, is one of the first graduates of the New Zealand Dojo. We saw him a few years back during that uh, Young Lions Cup where he didn't have a good showing, wasn't in the best physical uh, condition, and kind of disappeared for a while afterwards. Um, uh, during that same docuseries, he was covered extensively, and they showed how he's really kind of risen up in the ranks within that dojo system and kind of transformed his body and just become like a really, really great looking prospect in the world of pro wrestling and, you know, varied his game and grown quite a bit. So this was sort of like a showcase to see what we'd see from like the old head of the dojo, Michael Richards, taking on the young pup, uh, Richard Mulu. And I got to say the match was, um, oh, and by the way, I would have gone about two and a half on that second match. Um, in this match, Richards looked really great. The match itself was very competent, wrestled methodically, but it was a little bit too slow for my taste. Uh, one of the things that I noticed was, even though everything they did was done with excellence, there just seemed to be a lot of stalling, and in that stalling, there wasn't really a lot of reason for it. I sort of could just, from having some background wrestling myself, it seemed like they were get, getting to these points where they weren't sure what was next, and it might have been a communicate like some sort of communication breakdown, or people trying to figure out what was going to come next, what they should do. Um, so I don't know if it's a situation where, while both guys look good, I don't know if Michael Richards is at the point currently where he can competently guide a younger talent into a, a higher level, exciting match, or if Richard Mulu himself has trouble kind of following. I'm not sure. But uh, again, the action itself was pretty good. It was just a bit slow. They did a finish at the end where Richard Mulu tried to avalanche Richards in the corner. He missed and then was rolled up. And while he was rolled up, Richards uh, grabbed the tights for the one, two, three schoolboy roll-up pinfall. And Richards was kind of playing a quasi-heel in this match, uh, especially with Richard Mulu sort of having a lot of the... Uh, the local support. So, um, fine match. I would have gone about two and a quarter. Um, after that, there was a brief intermission. They cut that out of the transmission or of the broadcast, but they did mention it. They came back, uh, for the fourth match of the evening. And we had the team of, uh, Stevie Philippe and Tome Philippe. So they're brothers. Uh, they were taking on the team of Nikolai Anton Bell and Rowan Davis. And, uh, the brothers team here, they are uh, an actual kind of established tag team called the Natural Classics. They've sort of been a little bit more world-traveled. I've never seen them before, but this was the first act on the show that when they came out, I thought that they had a um, uh, an overall good presentation, like guys that seemed fully formed. They had a good gimmick, uh, you know, matching gear, and sort of seemed like stars, Um uh, you know, I should take that back. Jack Bonds and Balak Fale also had a bit of that as well. But th these guys definitely stood out. Uh, on the other side, Nikolai Anton Bell and Rowan Davis, they were also what I would assume were trainees from the New Zealand Dojo. Uh, this match was pretty good, actually. Um, 
I could definitely tell that the trainees were still very green, but they looked good. And I felt like this uh, Natural Classics tag team did a really great job of guiding them through. The one mess up in the match, there was a drop kick botch. One of the um, Lions gave a, a drop kick, and the drop kick itself looked great, but the, the the way they all fell and landed, they like almost collided heads and was a little bit awkward, but uh, they didn't let that mess up the flow. This match itself had a really good flow, a lot of physicality, and there's a lot of really great tag combos from the Natural Classics. This team, they're not on night two, but they did really leave a good impression on me. And I felt like they were guys that did a great job guiding younger green talent to a really solid match. Um, they had a lot of really cool inventive closing sequences. I just thought all, all across the board, not only did the Natural Classics look great, but they bumped and fed well and really made the Lions look extremely competent. This wouldn't have been out of place on any card pretty much anywhere, including in Japan. Um, the finish came at the end when the Natural Classics hit their tag team finisher called the Mother of All Bombs, 10 minutes, 23 seconds. And I would have gone three and a half on this. And to me, this was the match of the night. If there was anything that... Um, Anything that you are kind of listening and you're like, what should I check out? I would probably say match four of night one is definitely one that's a lot of fun and it's worth, you know, kind of checking out. After that, we had the semi-main event, uh, a singles match between Taiji Ishimori and Aaron Solo of The Factory with AEW, who he himself has quite a bit of uh, experience in the New Zealand and um, Australia region. He trained in the New Zealand dojo with Bad Luck Fale. So this was kind of like a, a homecoming for him and probably a bit of a favor. And, you know, Aaron Solo is a very talented guy. He's been all over in a lot of different promotions, but hasn't really found that niche for himself just yet. And so this is uh, some good exposure and a good opportunity for him to kind of expand his horizons. And Ishimori came out probably one of if not the most over guys uh during the entire evening obviously sort of has that brand awareness being <laughs> from the bull club and new japan and all all of his illustrious history plus you know what a talent uh, i'm hating ishimori's gear that he's coming out in recently and i don't think almost his entire run with bull club he's ever actually come off as a a cool heel when he comes out he's always got uh obnoxious kind of absurd um kind of entrance gears sort of the stuff that you'd see at like a, a spirit halloween store so i think that's something he could definitely work on but had a great reaction these two guys are definitely uh, another step above the level of talent that we'd seen on the show up to this point um as so i mean that was definitely very evident from the the in-ring action but the match itself was kind of just fine um, I was sort of excited considering who was involved here and the commentary team did a great job sort of explaining that with Ishimori being the current reigning junior champion, if Aaron Solo beats him in a non-title match, he might, you know, uh, kind of catapult himself to title contention here. So they kind of played up those stakes. But um, once the match started, it became very apparent to me that Ishimori had no intentions of going out there and actually working. Um, kind of just gave us your sort of standard house show work. And they did a lot of uh, early working of the crowd, which is fine, but it's usually something that you see on a non-televised sort of wrestling show where the guys aren't looking to work too hard. They do a lot of crowd, um, you know, like 
appealing to the crowd and sort of slowing things down. And it never just kicked up into that higher gear that I was expecting. Um, and you could also tell that Ishimori himself wasn't really in any sort of mood to try and make Aaron Solo look better than he actually is, you know, to do any sort of favors for him. So um, the other thing too, there was a, a period going down the, the final stretch. I don't know what happened, but uh, Ishimori was getting ready to give Aaron Solo a sort of unique shoulder breaker spot. We know that Ishimori has the bone lock and he likes to work that shoulder. And he, for whatever reason, he couldn't get Aaron Solo up. So uh, it, I noticed that there was just a little bit of weird communication. Um, and he had to get him up two or three times before he actually pulled off the move. Um, but I will say the match did pick up in the second half and it got quite a bit better from the early stalling so that's good and we we did see some good action from these guys the the other thing i didn't like about it aside from the early lackadaisical nature was after that shoulder breaker spot he just goes right into the bone lock aaron solo taps out very little drama sort of a sudden finish and um but you know overall considering the guys here and what we got nine minutes 58 seconds bone lock finish i'd go about three stars here so match was fine and that takes us to the main event of night one. And we had um, another of the Fale Dojo recent graduates, Andrew Villalobos. This is a guy that they seem to be pretty high on. They put him in the main event against Kenta, who, you know, I take back what I said about Ishimori. He was definitely over, but Kenta was by far the most over superstar on the evening. Makes sense why they had him in the main event here against young and up-and-comer Andrew Villalobos. And... Um, Lots of Kenta chants as he came over, came out. So like I said, he was the most over guy. And um, Vil Lobos is one of the three guys that uh, recently came out of the New Zealand Dojo that are currently signed to New Japan. So I believe it's him, Michael Richards, and I believe it might be um, Mulu was the other guy. I could be wrong, but I think those are the three uh, gentlemen that are currently actually signed to New Japan. Uh, one other thing before I talk about this match, they did a um, changeover with the commentary mid-show and added Tony Cozina and got rid of one of the color guys. And I thought Tony Cozina had great content, but there was a lot of just kind of forced fl the fluidity between the, the two men that were calling the action for the second half of the show and also the tone of Tony Cozina. They just didn't really fit the sort of higher nature uh, that we got from the commentary team prior to that. So plus there was no like playful banter. Cozina did really add a lot of knowledge and insight when he was talking, but he really talked over the lead play-by-play -play guy and didn't give him a lot of um, time edge-wise to get in, you know, his part. So I felt like that also dragged down my enjoyment of things just a bit. So um, a little bit of a downgrade. I also noticed throughout the show there was no promos whatsoever. We also didn't get any, um, you know, post-show promo uh, extra video for this first night either. So uh, that is what it is. But um, this guy, Andrew Villalobos, he's got a really great look physically. He almost kind of, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but sort of reminds me of like a killer Kowalski or a young giant Baba. He just sort of has these long limbs and expenditures. Um, not quite the same level as like, say, uh, Gunther or Walter, as you may know him, but it's not far off from that. So pretty imposing 
young, good-looking guy. I, I could definitely see why the company might be high on him. And when the match first started, these guys went into um, early grappling exchanges, like amateur style. And I thought once that started, things were really, like the scrambles and the movement were really, really, really good. So I was getting excited from that standpoint. But after that ended, it seemed to me that Villa Lobos is extremely green. Now, I'm not criticizing the company for signing him. I think with a guy that has as good of a look as him, it makes all the sense in the world why you would go in on him. But to me personally, I think he's still one of the most green, um, you know, type of like uh, for the guys that they're pushing out of this dojo. He was more green than I sort of expected. And... Um, Another thing too, Kenta shows up and he is in incredible shape right now. So I don't know what's uh, going on with Kenta. I know he's been doing some work with New Japan, but we haven't seen a lot of him since the end of the G1. Uh, he's done some stuff in the US, but right, he's been um, really hitting the gym and, and doing whatever he needs to do because this is uh, some of the best shape I've seen him uh, be in in quite a while. Um, but the, the match itself was pretty good. Um, I felt like Villa Lobos. The two things he did best was he was really, really good at selling and taking bumps and that sort of thing. And I thought he was really, really good in the early sort of amateur scrambles. Like he excelled at that. But in almost every other area, whether it was like strike exchanges or chaining or regular wrestling, he just kind of seemed a little bit sort of like a fish out of water, uh, essentially. But I see the promise that's there. So. Um, you know, definitely there's definitely upside. Um, and after the awkwardness sort of deteriorated, uh, the, after some awkwardness, the, the match kind of deteriorated to like a slower house show style, similar to what we saw out of the first, uh, or the semi-main event. So, you know, and there's also some mistiming from, um, Villa Lobos, but, um, they did let him do a big splash off the top rope. That was a little bit awkward, but also kind of cool. Uh, he has a really great Enziguri, actually. I will say that there was a moment he hit a fast-paced Enziguri, but it didn't actually make contact with Kenta, so the commentary team was trying to cover that up, but Kenta, you know, he sold it like a professional, 100%. I think if it had landed, that would have been really nice. I think uh, Villalobos, the splash he had, there's promise there. He got some good height and size. It just looked a little uh, kind of gangly. But um, they, they definitely gave him an opportunity to get some shine and some spots in. Um, down the stretch, they went into a huge strike exchange where Villalobos is, you know, kind of trying to murder Kenta. Kenta's not selling it very much. Every time he hits Villalobos, Villalobos is, you know, pretty much dying, which is, you know, so it, he's giving like nine to ten strikes and Kenta's giving him one and killing him. And then after uh, that strike exchange where Villalobos is trying to show his fighting spirit, Kenta... Gives him the GTS, 1, 2, 3, 13 minutes, 39 seconds. After the match, Kenta raises the young lion up, raises his hand, puts him over to the mm -hmm. crowd, and we are off. And that was the end of Tamashi Night 1. Um, and I, I have to say, I was a little bit like, you know, I thought it was a nice little fun sort of diversion. The same way that like those um, 
Young Lion shows that Yuji Nagata used to put on from like uh, Shinjuku Face used to be kind of reminded me of that. But like if you are now if you're like a completist like me and you're like I need to see this and you know I do think that they have some really promising young and up and coming talent that were featured here on the show. And you might be one of you might want to be one of those guys that's like, hey, I saw them early before they transitioned to Japan and before they, you know, really made a run of them. This might be a cool show to check out. But from like your average New Japan fans standpoint, I mean, this didn't really play into any of the kayfabe of the overall brand. There's nothing here from a storyline standpoint that really grabbed me. And there, it really left me wondering what is this what's the aim of Tamashi from the um first show standpoint is this supposed to be like a uh, an NXT like a feeder system was this just like a student showcase do they want this to be a third oceanic brand that actually has like a TV run or something of that nature is this just extra filler content um what's the aspiration do they want to present it like an indie and i didn't feel like many of those questions were answered but again at the end of the day i felt like the closest thing i could call this was like a a young line student showcase i thought the crowd was great they seemed to be very much into it they got to see a couple of the uh new japan um domestic stars and there's probably going to be a time in the future where some of these guys like richard mulu michael richards uh maybe jake taylor or you know andrew villalobos are guys that get brought to japan domestically and you might want to see the early you know uh, genesis of their runs in new japan so take that for what it's worth uh that brings us to the second night and this was a completely completely different experience and show I do um, want to say, well, the name of the event was NJPW Tamashi 2. This was on November 13th, 2022. Uh, the location of this event was Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. The arena was Liberty Hall. The attendance was about 500. And even though it was a smaller attendance, the atmosphere, the atmosphere of the first show, while the crowd was great, it's more like an average gymnasium. This was like a nightclub, and I believe my understanding is that PWA used this location all throughout the pandemic as sort of like their secondary home and had a lot of really great success there. So it makes a lot of sense why New Japan would use this as their uh, location for this uh, taping. And this felt like a real proof of concept you know, type show, completely night and day different and a totally different level of talent that they decided to include on the show um you know the crowd itself was visible the crowd itself was much more of a like a typical independent crowd with you know the snarky chants and that sort of thing they seemed to be much more familiar with the talent that were involved they had a full multi-camera setup uh for this event so you had over you know hard cam uh there was a balcony so there was uh cameras from the second level that you know kind of came down and then also ringside cameras as well so they had a really great setup the actual quality of the production of the show was miles better than virtually every single njpw strong broadcast that we've seen on uh new japan world as well so uh if this is what these shows are going to look like in the future for this brand um i thought it was pretty fantastic they did do a commentary in, commentary intro this week or for this show. 
uh, kind of introducing the names. I didn't capture or catch the names of the gentlemen that were calling the action, but like I mentioned, they are the guys that that call PWA Black Label, and I thought that they did a fantastic job. There was no uh, shifting of the commentary team on this evening, so that was kind of nice sort of have a continuity there the light setup the lighting rig was really great they had um they didn't have pyro but they had like strobe lights and like a orchestrated light show and then they had um as the the performers would come down there was like a smoke stack that would come out of the ground so it just looked really really great and very intimate um you know it, it was an awesome venue and an awesome uh production um aside from that it was very professional looking. The only thing that wasn't really quite professional, the, uh, on both nights, the rings that they used were uh, just your standard black ring with like, you know, black robes, black everything. Um, kind of like what you'd see on a regular indie show in the US. Uh, on this evening, they did have a, at some point, the canvas was ripped and so there's a little bit of tape but it, that was kind of a minor thing but they had a much more professional level ring on night two than they did on night one and they did have like the um custom Fale dojo tamashi uh ring apron which was a nice touch plus they had lines mark turnbuckle pads um they didn't have an led board on this evening for the second show but they did have uh the crowd in the shot and that was kind of like a nice thing. So you could see as the um, performers were coming through that they were walking through the audience. Reminded me of some of the um, some of the like progress shows that we used to see when progress was on top, you know, in the mid 2010s. So um, kind of similar layout there. And the show was um, a little short, um, shorter than I expected it to be. But again, I was told based on what I read, that this was sort of, again, like a proof-of-concept show. So they didn't really treat it like a full-fledged, you know, like New Japan-level B, B show where you have, where it's like two to three hours, that sort of thing. I mean, it was an hour and a half, and I feel like they were trying to determine whether they were going to cut it up into maybe like three episodes for the Tamashi brand or just, you know, air it as one episode. And they did air it as one episode, which was fine, but... um. Very, very good. So uh, let's get into the actual matches here. So um, on the first night, we had Jordan Allen Wright taking on Matt Diamond. Very short match, 5 minutes, 27 seconds. And as I mentioned, uh, Jordan Allen Wright, he was one of the guys that wrestled on the first night. I don't know that I uh, mentioned I, – I don't think that he had left much of an impression on me in his tag match. I felt like that match was um, – you know, maybe not what it could have been, but uh, on night two, this guy was really phenomenal. Uh, he he really stood out. He reminded me a lot of early young Clark Connors and all the other guys that Clark Connors kind of reminds me of. You know, like Davey Richards and you know Benoit and Brian Danielson. Jordan Allen Wright kind of had that look and sort of that intensity. Matt Diamond, I'm not too familiar with him, but I do know that uh, he's one of the PWA uh, talents. The crowd seemed to be somewhat familiar with him, and that was one of the interesting things too. Is like you had a, a mix of different types of crowd. You had a a crowd that was somewhat familiar with the indie scene. And that was, but you you definitely had uh, people there that weren't. Then you had, um, you know, almost everybody was familiar with the New Japan audience, which was, you know, across the board. And then you had some people that were just there to support the New Zealand dojo guys. 
So kind of a, a mixed match of different um, types of wrestling fan that were there. But Jordan Allen Wright and Matt Diamond had a, a really fun, really high level, really intense, quick five minute and 27 uh, second match. I went three stars on the match, which uh, three stars is a good rating, but for a five minute, 27 second match, that's pretty fantastic. Uh, uh, fantastic. Very, very fast paced. I thought it was, uh, I thought Allen Wright looked really rough and very physical and Diamond, on the other hand, was a really cool high flyer. Both guys got to showcase a lot of their good stuff. Uh, there was a lot of awesome heat from the crowd for, for the match itself. It was very short, very fun. Um, ultimately, Alan Wright put Matt Diamond in a Boston Crab, which I was assuming with him sort of having like a young lion sort of designation that it would be, you know, you typically put him in the, the um, Boston Crab, the other guy gets out, and that, you know, yada, yada, we go to a finish. But instead, Jordan Allen Wright uh, pulls him from the ropes, uh, cinches back into a full-fledged line tamer, and taps out Matt Diamond five minutes and 27 seconds, which um, another thing I want to mention, on the first night, with it being sort of a student showcase, a lot of the, uh, like, almost too much of having trainees in generic looking costume, you know, black trunks, black boots, black singlets, that sort of thing. This night was a lot more fun where you actually had full-fledged performers and gimmick, but I was I wasn't sure what the um pecking order was going to be for the booking and it seemed here that even though Jordan Allen Wright is a uh, a lion or a graduate of recently being a lion, it's hard to tell. He's not slotted under a Matt Diamond, and he tapped him out. Five minutes, 27 seconds. Great match. Uh, you know, definitely want to check that one out. Second match of the night, we had a tag team match between the team of SMS. That's the team of Aaron Jake and Unsocial Jordan. Uh, they took on the team of Jake Taylor and Richard Mulu. Those were two names that I mentioned on the previous night where I thought both guys had upside and looked good, but I wasn't overly impressed with Taylor or Mulu on the first evening. Um, SMS, Aaron Jake and Unsocial Jordan, they were definitely heels, and they sort of had some sort of zany gimmick, um, but I wasn't quite sure what their gimmick was. They There were some um, copyright issues with some of the music and the entrances, and unfortunately when guys were coming out, in situations like that, not only could you not hear the music, but you couldn't hear anything that they were speaking into the um, camera. So it was hard to get a feel for what these guys' gimmick is in general, but they were definitely like smarmy heels, um, let's put it that way. But I will say this, match two, this was a really, really fun uh, tag match and kind of showcased a little bit more of what I thought uh, – probably what management sees in Jake Taylor and Richard Mulu. I thought that this team of SMS being like more experienced veterans probably had a better, uh, you know, hand in leading them through to a, a fun, competent match. The match was short, six minutes, 20 seconds, but they did a great job of really making Jake Taylor and Richard Mulu look like strong, competent. Um, it's sort of like the, the Ric Flair versus, big strong guy whether it's you know lex luger or sting or nikita koloff he's gonna make them look like a million bucks that's what i thought sms did for jake taylor and richard mulu and i felt like it was a better utilization of them uh given where they probably are in their careers current day um so very very fun tag match uh the finish came it, and this was your classic tag structure i mean it was 
you know, opening stanza, you know, the shine, the heat, the comeback, the cutoff, the comeback, all that. And then we go to the finish and the finish ended where, um, Richard Mulu's, you know, you know, running wild, he's beaten up the heels and he goes to avalanche. One of the guys in the corner, he didn't learn from the night previous and he hits the corner post. He gets schoolboyed, And this time, um, one of the gentlemen, I believe it was unsocial Jordan. Yes, it was. He uh, goes for the schoolboy, and this time he puts his feet up on the ropes. The classic Ric Flair, one, two, three, six minutes and 20, 20 seconds. And the team of SMS pick up the big win over the New Zealand Dojo guys. Uh, that takes us tonight to match number three. We had um, friend of the show, Robbie Eagles, take on Carter Dreams. And um, oh, one other thing I need to make mention of. There had been some um, movement for some of the matches jeff cobb was originally announced for these cards and was going to be involved in some of these matches and had to step out last minute so they had to rearrange some of the cards so i believe carter dreams was going to be taking on jeff cobb ended up taking on robbie eagles and i gotta tell you this was my match of the night um again keep in mind there's very there was actually no matches on either card that went over 15 minutes so relatively short and typically unless it's something really out of this world you're gonna get a lower rating but i went three and a half on this match and i thought it was easily the match of the night and that's not just because we like robbie on a personal level but you know if, if you've ever watched him he's a fantastic performer and i thought carter dream uh, dreams a guy who i've never seen before i thought that he really uh came off well one interesting thing is um carter dreams Definitely in the heavyweight ranks. Robbie Eagles definitely a junior, but isn't afraid to mix it up with some of the heavyweight guys. But, you know, uh, in New Japan, we don't see that too often. But on the strong brand, that's kind of been normal. It's been uh, sort of as time's gone on, they've moved more and more away from it. But in the early days, it was pretty commonplace. And we're sort of seeing that here too. So looks like, at least for the time being, for however long this um, promotion continues or side project uh, looks like they're not going to be strict, uh, sticking to the strict designations of weight classes in New Japan. But um, yeah, Eagles was extremely over. We had a junior versus heavyweight match. Very, very playful and um, a lot of good bantering between the, the two guys. Robbie Eagles is the face. Uh, Dreams definitely played the bad guy. And um, very, very fast, very, very athletic match. Uh, there was a moment where Carter Dreams, I believe, hit Robbie Eagles with a devastating Snapdragon that I thought was very impressive. Um, the only thing I didn't like, Carter Dreams has had this really weird uh, gear where, like, and again, I wasn't totally sure on his, on his gimmick. I think he is in some sort of, uh, like, stable with the SMS guys, so I don't know exactly what his deal is, but he had, like, this gear where it's, uh, full length tights, but it, uh, on one of the legs, it, it, it cuts off like just under the knee. So it's kind of weird looking. I don't know what the deal is with that. I thought it was a little bit dumb, but um, this was a really intense and inventive and good struggle type of match. I mean, I thought that there was a lot of really great back and forth, great near falls. There's a couple times I thought it was going to end earlier than it did. Robbie was working the leg all throughout the match as he's prone to do to set him up for the Ron Miller special. Ultimately, he did wind up hitting the uh, 450 to the leg, got him in the Ron Miller special. Nine minutes, 23 seconds. He won the match here. Um, if there was one match I would tell you to, to check out on this evening, it'd be Robbie Eagles versus Carter Dreams. I thought it was really fantastic. Um, fourth match of the night, we had a six-man tag team match. 
as the Bullet Club team of Bad Luck Fale, Jack Bonza, and Kenta defeated the team of Matt Rogers, Jude London, and Paris De Silva. Um, and you might know Jude London, Jude London and Paris De Silva better as um, the tag team known as the Velocities. And you know what? Actually, I might have messed up some of these uh, alignments with Carter Dreams. I, I, I can't recall. But I know that Jude London, Paris De Silva, Matt Rogers, and one of the other gentlemen here, they're all in a group together. So uh, like I mentioned earlier at the start of the show, I'm not too familiar with the alignments. But um, this match was a little bit weird in a, in a certain sense because you had Fale and Bonza come out, and they're getting all this heat, like all this heat, uh, especially Jack Bonza. Like he was probably the most hated man on the show from the local crowd, but then you have Kenta, who is one of, if not the most overstars for the evening. And then um, apparently on the other side, there was, there's kind of some uh, alignment issues with Aussie open and, or I'm sorry, with the velocities and, and Matt Rogers as well. So different times, the crowd was cheering for different people on different teams, but the, they definitely worked it as bullet club heels and, uh, London, Silva, and Rogers as the faces, but they didn't always get the, the right reaction, so it was a little bit strange there. And the match was kind of short. It seemed like they might have been cut for time. And aside from that, uh, if anyone has ever seen these velocities, they are just dynamos in the ring, but they didn't really use this as a showcase to let them get a lot of their good shit in. So it was a little disappointing from that standpoint as well. The Bullet Club kind of was very dominant, sort of ran over this team quite a bit. So, you know, maybe they're trying to establish Jack Bonza as, you know, being like a full, you know, authentic member with the Bullet Club, and that's fine. I will say Jack Bonza was one of, um, like, okay, so there's a lot of guys on this show, like, for instance, SMS, Matt Diamond, Carter Dreams, really good uh, talents, but they don't, and even Matt Rogers and the Velocities. None of these guys come off as stars. They come off as, like, very good indie talents in current day. But Jack Bonza came off as, like, a star, a guy who knows who he is, and a guy who the moment you see him, you connect with him, and you're like, oh, okay, I, I don't even know exactly what the gimmick is, but I know that he's Jack Bonza and he, he matters. So he has that going for him. Um down the tail end of this match, I was reading some reviews, and you won't catch too much of a hint of it, but there was some sort of botch at the end where Jack Bonza accidentally got pinned by one of the members of the Velocities. I believe it's actually the gentleman that he ended up beating, which was Paris De Silva. The ref, uh, there was a roll-up, and the referee counted a three, and then music started playing, but the bell didn't ring, and then it, it got confusing, and eventually Jack Bonza puts Paris De Silva into um, some sort of, I think it's like a STF, and he taps him out for the one, two, three. And then the Bull Club music, uh, you know, plays. I was told that the way that this is presented on the tape, although it's pretty seamless, or on the, <laughs> I keep saying tape, on the um, broadcast, that they did a good job to make it seamless and make it seem like uh, the match went off with no hiccups. People in the audience were very confused because that's not what actually happened in real life. There was a, some sort of mistimings, uh, you know, one, two, three. Then they had to like redo the finish and kind of salvage it. So people in the audience were very confused, but that doesn't come through almost at all during the actual broadcast. They edited out the botch and Bonza picks up the win. I would give this probably the lowest rating of the evening, two and three quarters. 
not a bad match still, but just a little bit strange. Third, um, after that, we had the next match of the night. This is the fifth match. We had Aaron Solo taking on Liberd Lucci. Uh, eight minutes and 13 seconds. Um, and this match was fine. Um, when they came out, Aaron Solo was a guy that definitely the crowd didn't seem to have too much of a reaction for it. Liberd Lucci, on the other hand, this is a guy that has very much like a ship, like a, a chicken shit heel sort of persona. Someone who's not really looking to get too physical or, you know, he's trying to just uh, pick up wins by the skin of his teeth is pretty much what i gathered from what i saw but as the match went on the crowd really got did get behind aaron solo so he got over in this performance but i felt like a and i'm not taking anything away from solo but i felt like a lot of it was how good of a heel performance lucci put in he um was enough of a chicken shit to allow aaron solo to look like the hero and get his stuff in and really make a difference and i thought they they had a good match it was very fun it wasn't quite my cup of tea like it wasn't like a you know a new japan strong style match but the crowd was really into it the way that they played off one another and it was uh you know the match was fine but down the tail end there was a lot of good back and forth and it, it, it did pick up at the end aaron solo hits him with a pedigree eight minutes 13 seconds so he picks up the win there good match go three about three stars on that one Semi-main event, we had the team of Michael Richards and Andrew Villalobos of the New Zealand Dojo guys. They took on the team of Caveman Ugg and Ricky South. And this was big, beefy men slapping me, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, again, doing my research, I did learn that there was definitely some interesting things here. Like, for instance, Ricky South and Caveman Ugg, are, and uh, by the way, Ricky South is the current PWA Black Label um, reigning champion. And in the past, Caveman Ugg has been the longest reigning champion of that title. So these are two guys that are very well known to this crowd. I don't know that the New Zealand Dojo guys were as well known or got the same level of reaction when they came out. But the crowd was definitely uh, into the optics of four big guys fighting one another. But there was definitely some... Um, face heel alignment issues because Ugg and South were playing heel here, but Ricky South apparently just turned heel recently. So uh, there's that plus him and Ugg are both um, local to like their hometown boys and their PWA guys. So with the crowd, not knowing the New Zealand dojo guys quite as much there, there's a, a large section of the audience that wanted to cheer them, but they're clearly playing the heels. Plus caveman Ugg apparently recently left uh, PWA to join Melbourne City Wrestling, which is like a real-life heel turn. So there was a lot of sort of external elements sort of playing into this match, but the match itself was really, really good. I thought that uh, all of these guys, you know, were very physical. Um, I, I do still think that Villalobos is awkward at almost everything except for the early grappling. For whatever reason, he seems to be very comfortable when it comes to the shoot style elements of wrestling, but the other aspects um, definitely need some help and improvement, but I think that there's a lot of upside there. I thought Michael Richards, playing off more experienced guys, just came off a ton better than he did the first night and again still he looks incredible um from a physical standpoint and i like his gear and this was a good match um i 
did think that they were having the vets bump and feed a little bit too much for the New Zealand guys, um, which was making me think down the tail end that we were going to get maybe like another, like the PWA guys were going to pick up a win here. There was a hot tag section where they hot tagged Richardson uh, down the stretch, and I thought his hot tag sequence was really fantastic. But um, at the end of it, we came to a point where Michael Richards is in the ring alone with Caveman Ugg, hits him with a fisherman buster, and then the one, two, three at 12 minutes, 19 seconds. I wasn't expecting that. So that's kind of telling us right away that um, New Japan and, and um, the Tamashi as a brand, they're investing more into the New Zealand dojo guys than they are the established, you know, um, PWA vets at this current standpoint. So that kind of tells you what the, the company's attitude is towards these guys. But I thought Ricky South and Caveman Ugg, those were two guys that kind of reminded me of Jack Bonds in the sense that when they came out, they really did seem like stars or at least guys that were like known commodities and that you could connect with. And that was really great. And I thought Michael Richards, this was the best I've ever seen him look from the few limited amount of times I've seen him wrestle. And then that takes us to our, and with that match, I would have gone about three stars. And as you notice, aside from uh, match four, I gave two and three quarters. We're looking at nothing but three-star matches with the high point being Eagles and um, and Dreams at three and a half. Uh, that takes us to your main event uh, where we have the current reigning IWGB Junior Heavyweight Champion, Taiji Ishimori, uh, taking on um, Mick Moretti in a non-title match. Uh, Mick Moretti is a guy who I've heard a lot about, never seen before, and wasn't sure what to make of him because every time I've ever seen him, He's always in clown makeup, uh, face paint, and, you know, I'm not really big on that sort of gimmick and wasn't sure how I would feel about him. But once I saw this guy come out, he was really, really over, and Kent and uh, Ishimori was really, really over. Um, so they probably made the right decision in having this be the main event because these two guys are both jacked. I mean, they're, they're definitely junior heavyweights in terms of like height and size and weight and everything like that. But like, man, these guys are fucking shredded. Mick Moretti, especially like he looks like, uh, I don't even know like what to call him. Like he, he reminds me of like solid snake or like <laughs> liquid snake at the end of metal gear solid when they're fighting with their shirts off. Like this guy's in impeccable, uh, physical shape. Like he's a specimen. And so is Ishimori, obviously. And I think that because the crowd was so into both guys and it was the main event and everything like that, Ishimori was a lot more motivated on this night than he was on night one. And they went out there and they uh, – now, again, I haven't seen Mick Moretti, so I don't know his shtick, but it felt like a lot of the early antics, the in and out from the ring that him and Ishimori were doing, that was probably part of his um, his shtick. But the crowd was eating it up. I found it very highly enjoyable. And he does a lot of – sort of unique things that are uh, character-based. I don't know how to describe it, but the way he moves in the ring and everything like that, um, kind of like a playful but violent sort of uh, and hyper-athletic style. Very, very different than what I've seen from a lot of other guys. So um, Mick Moretti definitely got over with me in this. Uh, and I would say like of the talents that I've seen from Australia that they've showcased so far, him and Jack Bonza have to be the, like the two guys – Aside from the regulars that we're familiar with, like Robbie Eagles, these are the two like PWA guys that I haven't seen too much of that I was very impressed with. 
But um, him and Ishimori, they went out there and they they had a lot of fun. They did a lot of very fast-paced uh, athletic stuff. Um, very professional too as, you know, like I mentioned, there's a lot of students and recent graduates and lower level like indie guys. The, this match didn't come off like that. It came off as being something at a higher level than what we'd seen most of the night. Crowd was really into it. I did think at 10 minutes and 37 seconds, it was a little bit too short uh, for my taste. And the finish kind of came out of nowhere as well as Ishimori ended up uh, getting Mick Beretti in the bone lock, tapped him out 10 minutes and 37 seconds. So uh, I would go about three and a quarter, but I felt like those two guys had enough in them. If they were given the, the right stage in the right amount of time, they could really do something. I also think Mick Moretti, um, you know, even with the gimmick is someone that I would probably like to see either stateside or uh, in New Japan proper. Not to say that um, if this Tamashi thing takes off that, there's any anything wrong with continuing to work in the oceanic territory but i'd like to also see him get other opportunities as well so very impressed there last couple things uh there were some promos there was a 13 minute 52 second promo video that accompanied this evening uh with backstage uh you know um comments i thought it was a good little addition um and what i noticed is the way that most okay so like sometimes you'll see guys wrestle and you'll get one uh impression of them and then you'll hear them promo and you'll get a different impression of them and that didn't really line up here most of the guys that i felt like were good talents but didn't jump off the page character wise or pack you know from a character standpoint like being the full package when they promoed most of them were kind of that same way they were fine. There was no one that was a bad promo, but there was no. Most of those guys didn't stand out, and most of the gentlemen that stood out to me um, when they were out there wrestling, f- from a character standpoint, stood out to me when they promoted. So you know, go figure. Um, I felt like there was a lot more work to be done in that area for many of the wrestlers here. Um, I also thought that many of the wrestlers that were doing promos needed to introduce themselves more and put their put themselves over. There was a lot of guys talking about the brand and a lot of guys talking about how grateful they were for the opportunity to be on the worldwide stage and also kind of complaining about how, you know, the oceanic territory has always been sort of treated as like this uh redheaded stepchild that the rest of the wrestling world doesn't pay attention to and that's probably true but you you tended to hear that in almost every promo from the domestic uh guys and to me there's nothing wrong with saying that especially if it's true but i wanted these guys to kind of stand out more and get their intentions over get their characters over say their names and we didn't get a lot of that we also didn't have too many guys telling me who they wanted to fight, what they wanted to do, what their goals, their aspirations, and their dreams were. So I felt like there was too too much elevating of the brand, but not enough self-promotion, which is something that you do want to see. I thought that Carter Dreams had a good promo and was also still selling his leg injury, which was really good. Uh, Eagles kind of came off like the ambassador right now for this brand and sort of, um, he also did cut a post-show closing promo at the end of the night once the main event was over that was not televised but did make the rounds on social media. 
there was zero narrative that came out of any of this, though. There was nobody calling out the guys in New Japan proper. There was no one calling their shot, saying who they wanted to fight. So I feel like there wasn't a lot of direction given to these guys, to, and probably because they're not sure where they're going with the Tamashi brand in general. Um, at the end of the evening, commentary was teasing a potential Robbie Eagles versus Ishimori match down the road. I guess that's presuming he would still be champion or, you know, he's a pretty big enough star over here in Australia. Ishimori probably could come over without the title and still do big business either way. But um, they did kind of tease that. So if there was one match that was set up, it's probably Eagles and Ishimori down the road. Um, I did think that uh, Liber Lucci cut a really funny promo about how he doesn't his dream is to retire from wrestling on a farm relaxing eating apples and that's all he cares about so he's trying to catapult he's the one guy that i thought did great character work that he's like trying to use the tamashi experience to catapult himself to getting bigger earning potential so he can leave wrestling because he doesn't care about titles he doesn't care about success in wrestling he's just trying to make as much money as he possibly can so he can leave it behind <laughs> which i thought was really funny um and richards and villa lobos did do a good fiery young lion promo talking about what they'd gone through how many years they've been putting into wrestling what they had to deal with throughout the pandemic to get to this point and where they plan to lead Tamashi into the future, as well as, you know, their upcoming work that they expect to be doing in new Japan. So I thought that was good. Um, but that is pretty much it. So that's going to do it for my um, coverage of the promos. Uh, I guess my final thoughts, and I'll leave you guys with this um, again, in a nutshell, the first night, was fun and kind of felt like a student showcase the second night really did feel like a pilot episode of what they hope tamashi might look like i would hope in the future that they get their own unique uh new japan branded even cerulean blue uh mats or if not that something with the lines mark on it i think that that's a good touch and something that you want to see to have greater association with new japan as a whole um i also noticed that there was not a lot of representation from other oceanic wrestlers that may have potentially fit into this um you know this brand there's no jay white uh no gino which you know gino's a guy that could have been doing commentary or even wrestled um, no one from TMDK, especially namely Jonah, which at this time we know uh, was leaving to go to WWE, but I think his, um, absence was pretty auspicious at the time and kind of was a little bit of a red flag that he might not be staying with New Japan, but no TMDK guys, no Aussie Open, uh, no Hanare, no Osprey, who's also has a lot of, um, you know, experience in the Australian uh, market as well. And obviously Jeff Cobb had to pull out as well, who he himself is native uh, or has um, ethnicity native to Guam. So um, probably we'll see him do some work in the Australian market with this brand down the, few, down the road. But I did think uh, it, it was a little bit unfortunate that while this show was really fun, most of the matches were kept a bit short. But in a certain sense, if you haven't seen the show i would say definitely check out night two night two was really really fun it was there was no matches that would blow you away but there was nothing that i would say was skippable 
Every single match had really good action, told a good story, was short and concise. The crowd was really into it. This crowd was really excellent, had incredible production, and they all told stories, and it was all a really good introduction to a lot of the characters and performers that are probably going to be the initial cornerstones of what this New Japan Tamashi brand is going to be. And at the end of it all, um, I guess the question that I'm left with is what is the real aim here of this brand? I know that there was an interview recently with uh, Robbie Eagles on the um, We Work Stiff podcast where they interviewed him and asked him about his uh, what he knows, what the company is thinking, and what their aspirations are. And it was pretty some pretty lofty stuff and very exciting the way that he sort of pitched it. But, um, you know, my question is, what's the business plan? What's the game plan? What what are they trying to do? I do know that they have announced uh, in the future they have that uh, news – or I don't know what it's called, but there's a cup that's coming up, and they're going to be doing that in Wagga, I believe, Australia. And that hopefully that makes tape, and we can see that as well. Um, but I, I think that it's smart that New Japan – tries to expand into this particular market because with them having so much English content, the fact that there is a whole, you know, section of wrestling fans over in Australia and New Zealand that are English speaking and are in the same time zone, that's a whole untapped market that a lot of people have sort of left by the wayside. And, you know, while there is a vibrant indie scene, there's not a market leader necessarily in the oceanic region of the world when it comes to wrestling and i think new japan can really make some incredible inroads and do something for themselves uh, business-wise and we've even seen that in the past from some of the the other tours that they've done pre-pandemic um i also think that because of the names that they have like jy and Team DK and, you know, uh, Will Ospreay and Robbie Eagles and the list goes on and on, plus all the domestic stars that they have that no doubt would be big draws and, you know, garner a lot of attention like a Naito or Tanahashi or Okada, etc. Um, there's a lot that they could do over here, and it's uh, probably less cost prohibitive than it is for them to do business over in the States. Not saying that they shouldn't do business in the States, but it just makes a lot of logistic sense for why they might want to do this. But at the end of the day, we haven't heard too much about this brand since its inaugural inception. We don't really know if they're going to, they haven't made an, an announcement that they're going to have like weekly shows or quarterly shows or what the game plan is. Um, and while I thought that this show was really fun and really exciting and a super easy watch. And again, I can't recommend it enough. Um, it also didn't fit into the overall scope and narrative of New Japan as a whole, and it didn't have that authentic New Japan feel. Kind of felt like a high-end indie show, not that different from like a Defy or you know a Prestige or West Coast Pro or PWG. It sort of felt like a super indie where you were just seeing some of the better talents from PWA mix it up with New Zealand Dojo and a couple domestic New Japan guys. I feel like they need to do a bit more um, to really differentiate it and establish it as a true blue New Japan brand. And sort of as time goes on, let us know what the, what the aim is. Because like I mentioned, 
we're not sure at this point. Like, are they trying to get a television deal and actually launch something and, and make revenue that way? Is this going to be a touring brand? Um, you know, is it a feeder system? Is it something just to showcase? Are they just going to build content off of it? Uh, is it, are they going to treat it like a super indie? And those are the things that we just don't know yet. One last thing. There were no promos during the show. There was nobody, like, no speaking points. There was no surprises, no interferences. And that probably makes sense with it being, like, a pilot episode. But I w- those are things that I'd like to see injected into it, some excitement, something that is newsworthy that people are going to be talking about that will garner attention. And that was sort of lacking from the show as well. Overall, those are my final thoughts. I hope um, you've enjoyed what uh, we've, what I've, uh, my insights. And uh, I hope I didn't talk your guys ears off too long. Um, and that is going to do it for our coverage of new Japan, Tamashi nights one and nights two. So um, this coming week, we, me and Jeremy, we will be returning to um, discuss Wrestle Kingdom uh, 17, as well as New Year's Dash. And that is going to do it. Um, if you've enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation. Visit socialsuplex.com slash donate. Clicking on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. Make sure to connect with us on social media. Uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. You can also email Jeremy at socialsuplex.com. Check out all our other shows on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We have One Nation Radio, hosted by Rich Ladd and James Boyd. Grave Consequences with Caleb and Maserati. All Things Elite with Floyd and Austin. The AEW Match Guide Podcast, hosted by Sir Sam. And Great Match Generator, hosted by Danny Kugler. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review. And we will catch you later this week on Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Itchy Bond. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 